Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's show, I play a few things. First, I play an interview I did on live radio with journalists Anya Parampil, Max Blumenthal, and Ben Norton, all of whom work at the Gray Zone. Then I play a one-on-one interview I recorded with Anya Parampil. And then on the bonus, a one-on-one interview I did with Max Blumenthal. As always, you can rate and review The Katie Helper Show on iTunes. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can also find us on Patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's Patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, which is where you will find all the bonus episodes. Make sure you also check out my new podcast with Matt Taibbi called Useful Idiots. So now um, we're going to bring you three amazing guests in the studio, in person, Max Blumenthal, Anya Parmpel, and Ben Norton, back from their world tour of uh, Honduras, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Syria. R.I.P. my mentions and my show. Junket journalism. Um, Yeah, junket journalism. They work at the Gray Zone. Yes. Before we talk about that, I just would love a one-minute recap of what just happened in Israel. There was a little closer if you can. There was an election, and uh, the uh, former Israeli general involved in the destruction of the Gaza Strip, while he was fighting a a class-action lawsuit in uh, the Netherlands for war crimes, uh, was elected. Uh, defeated Netanyahu, won the most seats, Netanyahu being, you know, the right wing fanatic we all know and don't necessarily love. Uh, this was Benny Gantz from the Blue and White Party, which is him, three other former uh, military chief of staffs, ma- major generals, and uh, a sort of right of center candidate. And the most interesting thing about the election is that the um, Palestinian citizens of Israel came together to form a joint list. So all of these different parties um, uh, that may not necessarily agree with each other formed a block to kind of uh, mobilize anti-Netanyahu sentiment because he always campaigns against them, but also to sort of uh, protect their interests in the Knesset. And they won 15 seats, which is a lot for any party to win. Uh, you would think this would make them kingmakers because Netanyahu and Gantz were very close. They ran neck and neck in a parliamentary system. Someone who wins 15 seats is going to be a kingmaker. But no, this is Israel. You're not going to allow Arabs to be part of a coalition government. And so Avigdor Lieberman, the founder oh, of the Yisrael Betenu party, an extremely far-right figure who said that he wanted to um, chop the heads off of disloyal Arabs with an axe, is the actual kingmaker. And so Netanyahu's Jason. opponent, who the New York Times has cast as a centrist, Benny Gantz, is actually going to have to turn to Avigdor Lieberman, this extreme right-wing figure, to decide the next coalition because this is an apartheid state. And then, of course, you have millions of Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel, but who live under Israeli control and had no say over what government will be deciding their future. Yes. That's pretty much, I would say that's all you need to know. Blue and whitewashing, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well, like I, I call it red and re- red, and red. just it's going to be a lot of bloodshed. Uh-huh. And Netanyahu... Um, Actually, Anya, who, you know, she can talk about quickly about um, the documentary she did about Netanyahu and his corruption trials. He may now face corruption charges uh, for, I think, three separate cases. But, you know, one of the things that she one of the points she emphasized in her documentary about him when we went to Israel, Palestine um, in early 2018, is that while Netanyahu, he is right wing, he's very racist. He always um, (coughs) demagogues the Palestinian population. 
nation. He's promised to annex the West Bank, but he's always less likely to wage one of these massive military escalations mm. than his predecessors like Ehud Barak from the Labour Party. And I worry that someone right. like Benny Gantz, who wants to appeal to the increasingly right-wing public, will do that at a time of heightened tension, possibly against Hezbollah and Lebanon. Right. That's what I meant kind of by the blue and whitewashing, right, is that he's not seen as the right-wing fanatic, but in terms of policies, it's not going to be that different and you're saying maybe even worse he says i'm netanyahu without the corruption yeah so i'm more efficient than <laughs> Yahoo, I, I worry that he's much more likely uh to wage a massive military escalation yeah. than netanyahu would be um and so tell us about your documentary yes this was a documentary i did over a year ago now, a year and a half ago now when i still worked for rt america uh, max was the producer on that film it was called netanyahu prime or crime minister oh, nice. <laughs> we're proud of that one but we were in palestine at a time when netanyahu was facing uh, when when the attorney general actually announced uh, that they were going to investigate and uphold these charges against netanyahu for basically cutting deals accepting lavish gifts like cigars and champagne and shopping sprees in exchange for, in some cases, favorable coverage with a local Israeli paper. And there was definitely a hope in what would be described as the, the liberal side of Israeli politics that Netanyahu could face consequences for these for these things. But a year and a half has now passed and hopefully it can be renewed if he's not in government anymore. But the best part was with his son, Yair. Yeah, well, we get into some of the family antics as well, because Sarah and Yair Netanyahu are characters in their own right who are who are quite interesting. Yair is also very popular on Stormfront, the yeah. Nazi oh, website. Wow. And yeah. in fact, they d dedicated their front page to him, this neo Nazi website dedicated their front page to the the son of Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, which wow. says everything. And Yair was actually and after Yair Bolsonaro <laughs> recorded by a driver on the on out on the town with his friends one night, asking for his friend to hand him a few bucks so he could pay a stripper. Mm. And when his friend said no, Yair said something like, oh, "My dad gave your dad that great gas deal. What do you mean you can't spare a few bucks for me?" So that's just one example of the kinds of... of the kind of sleaze that's around sleaze, Netanyahu that exactly. actually partly cost him uh, mm. the election, but he was the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. Right. That's that's really a violation of that kibbutzim sharing, paying it forward. Um, yeah. You, you know, you he know, should have paid for the lap share dance. share tips for, for lap dance. Yeah, exactly. Like kibbutz, yeah, you know? yeah, right. What, what uh, has happened to Israel? What a know? Shanda. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about um, what where you guys were just now, this tour. Oh. Well, Ben, let's hear from you yeah, since you ben were the Norton. one who most recently Absolutely. left Venezuela. Well, they just got back from Syria. I wasn't with them. At, the, at that time, I was in Venezuela. And the three of us were in Venezuela reporting on the U.S. sanctions, which are largely ignored by mainstream corporate media, right? These sanctions are a form of collective warfare, collective punishment against the entire civilian population. The Trump administration is continuing a policy that began under Obama. Of course, like all of these policies, they're bipartisan. And... But the Trump administration has taken it to a new level and has imposed on August 5th a full economic embargo of Venezuela, which, you know, that that language might 
sound, you know, formal to someone, but what it really actually means on the ground is it's effectively siege warfare. It's kind of medieval style siege mm -hmm. warfare. A former UN special rapporteur expert actually said that it's explicitly it's the 21st century equivalent of medieval warfare that is meant to bring entire nations to their knees mm -hmm. is the language he used and you know you can see the effects of that on the ground now in venezuela we are told that there's this humanitarian catastrophe things are actually pretty normal the most important thing is that there's peace and tranquility right now. There has been a, a, a period of violence, extreme violence carried out largely by the right-wing opposition in 2014 and 2017, which also gets very little coverage in mainstream media, where the right-wing, the extreme right-wing opposition was setting Chavistas and black Venezuelans on fire, was making, making these massive violent barricades in the street called Guarimbas. That has all stopped. The opposition has utterly been crushed, and in fact, in the past week, there was a pretty comical incident where Juan Guaido, who is the U.S.-appointed coup leader, who has no actual authority on the ground in Venezuela, but claims to be the interim president, this past week, some of his allies on social media were complaining that no one shows up to their rallies mm, anymore. Because at the beginning of the coup attempt in January and February, they weren't big, but they would have several hundred, maybe a thousand people show up. Now, it's just so pitiful, they get like 50 people to come out to yeah, their... Yeah, Guaido does not seem very charismatic, like politics aside he doesn't it's really... like obama without a teleprompter it's like... yeah but obama had like some swagger and was mm -hmm. kind of appealing like regardless of what you think of his politics and he kind of had a good deadpan sense of humor Guaido just looks like he's um i don't know like the kid who runs with a backpack for a bus who's like <laughs> a, prep, a prep school student the dog's chasing him he has, yeah and he actually has no sense of humor either yeah you, you do have to give the chavistas credit they have a great sense oh my of humor. gosh yeah remember hugo chavez uh, talking about the smell of sulfur yeah and the, devil. At the un the classic yeah. moment when he followed George and he says Bush. the president of the united states whom i call the devil that's so funny but we also were in nicaragua and in nicaragua there again something that got no mainstream coverage it was the 40th anniversary of the sandinista revolution and there's something similar happening there where the, the again it began under obama and has continued under trump there is now a sanctions campaign against nicaragua and the difference in nicaragua is that its economy hasn't been as hard hit because venezuela is a petro state it mm -hmm. has been for 100 years and well, Nicaragua. the sanctions aren't as severe, first of well, all. Well, of course. But Nicaragua, you know, the economy is largely self-sufficient. So it's actually very interesting to see in Nicaragua the many creative forms of resistance people have, you know, over the past dec several decades yeah. created in terms of food sovereignty. In fact, Nicaragua exports food to the U.S., mm. which is really wild to think about. So we, we, got, we got to see a lot of these, you know, very interesting creative forms of left-wing resistance that are just totally ignored by mainstream media. And Anya, tell us about when you were in the embassy <laughs> and how that was and what the effect of that was. Well, that the was embassy, quite a remarkable experience. It was earlier this year in May, or actually the right at the end of April, following the failed coup attempt by Guaido when he ran in the street with like 15 soldiers and claimed to be taking over the government. And on that date, in the in the U.S. in Washington, his so-called ambassador Carlos Vecchio, who I've written about at the Gray Zone, and is essentially a tool of Exxon Mobil. He used to work for 
Exxon in Venezuela, and he was their main lawyer fighting the Chavista government for years up until Exxon was kicked out of the country. Now he's ambassador to the U.S. and a main player in the primary U.S.-backed opposition party, Popular Will. He wanted to stage his own coup and essentially walk into the building, which served as Venezuela's embassy for several years, if not decades, I believe. And he was unsuccessful because a group of U.S. activists led by Code Pink, Popular Resistance, and the Answer Coalition occupied the building, or didn't occupy it. I shouldn't say that. They were actually invited legally right. by the internationally recognized Venezuelan government to protect the premises. And so a few of us ended up being getting stuck inside because... The Venezuelan opposition essentially sicked a group of crazy right-wing rabid activists, or not activists, just professional, you know, some of them were working for the think tanks in Washington, D.C., some of them were working for the Inter-American Development Bank and different groups, but they got time off to go and terrorize us, bang pots and pans outside of the window, they were violent with people on the outside, which Max can speak more about because he was on the outside. We didn't have any food, so people like were trying to organize and uh, find ways to get it inside. But basically, the U.S. government used the same tactics it uses against Venezuela to force us out of the embassy. They mm -hmm. put us under siege, blocked food. They cut off our water at one point and even turned off the electricity. So even though the U.S. claims that it wasn't responsible for the blackout earlier this year in Caracas, it was very telling that these were this was the strategy of the U.S. government trying to get what it wants. Uh, and eventually they succeeded by arresting four activists who remained inside and now face a year in prison and a $100,000 charge uh, for for trying to uh, protect international law, the Vienna Diplomatic Convention, which dictates it was the responsibility of the U.S. government pr to protect those right. grounds in the interests of the internationally recognized government, not this ragtag group of corporate hacks and right-wing fanatics that make up the so-called administration and of Guaido. And all these racist things, right? All those protests. Yeah, there yeah. There was a really, were... really violent Zumba instructor who really? was like, leading them. Yeah. Maybe I find, I may need that person, though, as a trainer. <laughs> I need some radical, you know. Yeah, they, were, they were calling women... No cursing. Oh, yeah. Sluts. Sluts. Didn't say that, they right. were calling black people the N-word. They were... They, they had a lot no of homophobic shame. insults. Right. Especially in Spanish. I mean, yeah. what they were saying Don't in say English, they kind of so This is what the Chavistas <laughs> deal with on a day to day right. basis right. in Venezuela from yeah. Guaido's group in particular. Um, and Anya's been showing in her work at the Gray Zone that there's another faction of the opposition that actually wants to negotiate with the government. I would call it the sort of patriotic opposition. Mm. And they say constantly, along, and the Chavistas say it too, if we could get rid of this Guaido group, which is US backed, um, we could actually have a country again. We could mm. negotiate and come right. back together. And, and actually, we found the same thing in Syria in, mm. a, in a way where there's a loyalist opposition. I mean, you're dealing with a totally different government yeah. that is not democratic. But you find – I found when I was – we were just in Damascus talking to people you know, in private, but very openly people speaking at restaurants or whatever. The criticism is very pronounced mm -hmm. of Assad and the government around him, but they don't want the state to be torn down and be turned into Libya. And they right. feel like if the U.S. hand were removed, they could actually participate and that the solutions exist there within their own country. But because in Venezuela's case, there's an extreme right-wing party or in Syria's case, there's extreme like violent 
armed groups trying to take over the country backed by outside forces. It makes it difficult for there to just even be a, a simple conversation. But in Venezuela, at least they seem closer to that. This week, the government signed several agreements with some opposition parties saying that they are now agreeing to a national dialogue of peace, something like that. Mm. So just to, to show that they actually can work with elements of the opposition to implement reforms and, and find solutions that are not just based in Washington. But these other groups, you can't really you can't negotiate with terrorists, as Bush would say. Mm-hmm. In, in in Syria, one of our you know one of the people we became most you know cl- closest to, um, and you know we were accused of being on this junket where the regime is taking us on a tour. We were actually pretty much left on our own, and this guy kind of uh, helped us and helped showed us around. And he was he's a local businessman who actually participated with the opposition in trying to get the protests off the ground early on and remained active and throughout the last eight years. But he said after three months, the whole thing became militarized. It was overtaken by Qatar and Saudi Arabia. And I saw what it was. And I didn't want to tear down the whole state. We wanted reforms. The government was saying, begging us, please stop the protests and we'll do they what you want. They would have done anything at that point to... But then well, it turned they did a lot, including an amnesty for all prisoners. Right. And, and this is one of the this key is talking Assad, points. This is Assad, the Assad government. Yeah, and then, and, then it be, and then he said then it just became this violent regime change uh, operation where people were being slaughtered and it became sectarian. And I pulled out and I realized that the war was the problem. Mm-hmm. His own factory was actually um, taken over. He was employing Palestinians at a refugee camp. And he said, my factory oh. was taken over by the opposition and they made me swear that I was not an Alawite. And once I showed that I was Sunni, they decided we won't slaughter you and we'll let you operate your factory. And then it was blown up by the Syrian military when it tried to retake that territory. And he said, you know, I maintain contacts with people on the opposition side and on the government side. And it's the war and the U.S. that's the problem. And it's the same thing you hear from the patriotic Venezuelan opposition, mm. which doesn't like Maduro, right. but also doesn't want their country turned into Honduras or the Dominican right. Republic. And they're very offended by the idea that the opposition has to just be controlled and and totally answer to Washington. If you're a Venezuelan, that isn't really an attractive solution, even if you do oppose the government. Right. Yeah. You still believe that you're an independent country. Right. That's what, I mean, I constantly find that I'm asking people who spend a lot of time talking about um, um, Maduro and, and Assad, it's like, okay, so you can dislike them and what do you want to have done? Mm-hmm. And it, that kind of ends the discussion. They'll be like, um, well... I mean, my favorite is when people just demand that you condemn someone right? Uh, before. It's like a condition of having a discussion with you. Or that it's our place even yeah. as U.S. citizens to be saying this leader is terrible before we even, you know, have a constructive conversation about. Well, situation. it's like a religion. It reminds me of growing up Catholic where you just have to take this position for the church. And it's like, oh, why do we have to just take this firm <laughs> position? And the only reason for the case of things like Syria is to justify foreign mm-hmm. intervention. You can say, oh, I oppose intervention, but you're established the ground for it. And another quick point, though, I will say... We have to wrap up, yeah. Yeah. Venezuela still is absolutely a democratic state. Yeah. And the idea that Maduro is a dictator is right. so yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Really the U.S. Is. has done everything it can to try to prevent the opposition from participating in democracy, sabotaging peace talks, even threatening to sanction elements of the opposition that support negotiating with the government. Okay, you're saying the pa- in patriotic elections. Yeah. Yeah. And the Well, US- I just want to make sure people know what, how to find you guys in your work. So the gray zone, what's... Yeah, the gray zone dot Don't go anywhere, guys. As I said, here is my one-on-one interview with journalist Anya Parampel. 
Anya Parampil is a journalist based in Washington, D.C. She's produced and reported several documentaries, including on-the-ground reports from the Korean Peninsula, Palestine, Venezuela, and Honduras. I'm uh, interviewing a couple of the, the members of the, of the squad that I just interviewed, and I'm talking to Anya Parampil, who is a journalist with the Gray Zone and uh, used to be with RT. And you just came back from a world tour. Your band was touring. Um, you were where? In Honduras? As a team, we're in Honduras and Venezuela together. And then uh, Max and I also went to Syria and Lebanon, where, as Max and Ben, went to Nicaragua. So I've been focused on Honduras, Venezuela, mainly reporting-wise, have been focused on those two places, but then had the experience to visit Syria and at least just see it with my own eyes before perhaps releasing some more reporting down the line. But it's a little bit trickier there to... to we didn't have journalist visas, so I didn't want to be pushing it too hard and, and making it very obvious that I was there for a reporting trip and maybe come back in the future and okay. try to try to do more like that. Um, were you there with Rania Kalik too? Yes. Okay, so what was that like? Because Rania's family is from Lebanon, so. Yeah, it was really great. We were fortunate enough to be invited to participate in a labor conference. It was a, a the third event of this type that the Syrian labor unions put on and they invite groups from all over the world. And this time the U.S. delegation decided to include a few journalists. So myself, Max and Rania were included and invited. And since it's generally difficult to get a visa to go into Syria, it was a way for us to go and see see the situation. All Rania has been there before, but Max and I have both written or in my case, on RT covered Syria quite intensely, but never had the chance to really visit. And so it was really important that that we got to do that. And uh, it was just, we got to see it with our, get to, got to see it firsthand. And for me, I got to kind of just compare it to Venezuela since it's another country that I've been covering really closely. And I've also been covering the ways that Syria and Venezuela diplomatically have kind of strengthened their relationship since Syria was one of the primary regime change wars waged by the Obama administration and it failed. And now the Trump administration is ramping up against Venezuela and that's kind of pushed them closer together. And and they're experiencing similar situations now because in Syria, while the military war may be winding to a close last week, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, actually said the war is over there is still an economic war that has been escalated over the past year. And that's exactly the same experience as Venezuela, where through financial means, the U.S. can cause a lot of damage and suffering in a way which makes it more difficult for the U.S. public to kind of understand that we're at war against these people or that our government is causing massive amounts, like massive amounts of suffering and death because there's not pictures of bombs or even pictures of foreign fighters in Syria's case. So before the war in Syria, for example, the Syrian pound was 
equal to the U.S. dollar in about at about forty-seven to one. Now that number is like six fifty to one, and people there were complaining that it changes on a daily basis. And this is exactly the same kind of complaints that I heard when I was in Venezuela. That since sanctions have been escalated, their currency situation has gotten out of control, and it can just change on a whim on a day-to-day basis. And so that was interesting for me to see the the comparison between the two. Tell us more about um, your time in the embassy. I had wanted to interview you around that time, and we I guess you were busy, obviously, and um, I don't remember what happened. Um, I'm not being passive-aggressive. There's no tension in the room for people who aren't here, um, which is everyone listening to this. Um, how long were you in there? What were the conditions like? Um, did you shower? I mean, all those things. I'm just curious about it. Yeah, it was about 10 days overall that we were stuck inside, those of us who decided after a certain point when the right-wing Venezuelan opposition surrounded all of the doors. And I would say the U.S. Secret Service and the police outsourced their job to these crazy fascist-minded people who, as we mentioned on your radio show, were hurling homophobic and racial slurs at people but were also violent i mean they strangled people they were stepping on people's feet to so that they could like secretly cause them to react and make it look like the the activist was the one cause exactly so the attack of veteran they did well that was the police that was the police uh gary jerry condon the president of Veterans for Peace just was trying to deliver us a little cucumber because at that point we couldn't get any food and the police just brutalized him, threw him to the ground. And then they left him sitting on the sidewalk bleeding. This was a man in his 70s bleeding from his head for like 15 minutes. They even blocked the ambulance from coming down the street for a considerable amount of time. But as a who was the person who had their like someone put their arm around someone's neck was that yeah no that was somebody else that was someone who was trying to get food to us also inside and these people were given a free pass by the secret service to commit any acts of violence they wished against the anti-war activists who were on the outside i guess it was easier for them to let those people do it than to actually do it themselves as officers and As for conditions on the inside, I did shower. You know, we had showers and everything for a while. It was pretty nice. We had food and electricity and we were like, oh, great. We can. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful building in Georgetown, one of the most affluent neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. And we were thinking we could do this for as long as we need to to protect the premises again at the invitation of the internationally recognized government. But then the U.S. turned the same tactics it uses against the Venezuelan people in order to crush their will and their support for their revolution by cutting off the electricity, preventing us from getting food and shutting off water. And I will give credit to one member of the collective. His name is David Paul, and he's one of the four that was arrested. Uh, Ultimately, four people were arrested. Adrian Pine, Kevin Zeese, Margaret Flowers, and David Paul. He had the foresight once they started. uh, I think it was after they cut off the electricity, he said, they're going to do the water next. So he spent a lot of time filling up buckets, like every trash can, every huge garbage container that he could find and filled it up with water. So we could still shower after that point, but it was thanks to him. And a lot of us were thinking they wouldn't go that far. They're not going to turn off water. 
uh, or do that to their own citizens or DC water wouldn't allow it. But of course, they must have gotten some order from the State Department to shut it down. The water bill was paid for. And right. We had that information, so there was no justification for shutting it down. Besides helping um, the Guaido and Trump, um, so uh, this is like such an unimportant part. But you, like, you could shower. You don't mean like there was a. Sh- you didn't turn on the shower. You mean you use those buckets of water after a certain point? Yeah. Yes, after a certain point. Yes. Um, trying to give the people with it when I know that they're really. Uh, wondering about and we were like cooking for example cooking on the engines of the diplomatic cars that were in the basement we had to get really creative in the garage which is the basement yeah Yeah. so because we it was a electric stove that we had in there so once they cut the electricity there was no way for us to cook and we had all these dry beans so we had to get creative and it did show the whole experience for me really did show the level of human potential there is in this country which I always like to to point out to people who sometimes get apathetic or hopeless yeah. about this place. it's We actually came together and survived pretty well in the face of the U.S. State Department and what was basically a CIA operation to sabotage it. And so what made you decide to stay in? What were, did, you, did you think you were going to have to stay in? And then what made you decide to leave when you left? I had been covering the situation in Venezuela so closely. Uh, Ben Norton, Max Blumenthal, and I were in Caracas for a month in February, right at the the height of the the coup in the sense where there was still a feeling that the U.S. would perhaps invade like they were threatening to do on February 23rd. And there was a lot of uncertainty about how this coup policy by the Trump administration would play out. And so by the time April rolled around, I had also been speaking with the uh, Venezuelan diplomats. I had just released an interview with the foreign minister and the UN representative talking about their fight in New York at the UN to preserve their credentials and all that. So I happened to have just come back from those interviews in Washington, D.C. We were, Max and I were involved in in some of the events that they initially had at the embassy where they had concerts and and just political talks with local activists and community members. And it was a really celebratory, happy time. And then it all changed around April 30th when the Guaido group in Caracas attempted a military coup and failed miserably with his 18 ragtag soldiers. And that day, uh, or the next day, we had no idea this was going to happen, but I, hap- I I was inside and that that's when they unleashed these right wing crazy people that I mentioned on all doors, all sides of the embassy. They came and made it impossible for anyone to come in or out, placing it under siege. And I happened to be inside. And since I had been, like I mentioned, covering the issue so closely, I just decided this was a very important moment in history uh, to witness and to kind of carry my coverage through. So I'm going to stay for as long as I can. And that's that's uh, slowly they started, you know, cutting the electricity, cutting the water. But I only left once they officially placed a notice on the front door threatening to arrest everyone who remained inside just because I didn't want to risk that as a as a journalist. And that's when another one of my colleagues, a journalist, Alex Rubenstein, left and another one of our 
our friends. And so at that point, there were four people left behind, the four people I mentioned, and those were the four that they went in like in full military gear, helmets, night vision goggles, all of these really unnecessary uh, pieces of equipment for four people. It was like it was like three dozen. Yeah, pretty much. And they like drilled down the door when they could have just asked because at that point they were they were cooperating up as as much as they needed to. You know, they weren't going to prevent police from coming inside. But no. They wanted to play soldier and they busted the door down and arrested those four people. And like I mentioned that on your show, they now face a $100,000 fine and a year in prison for this act, which was basically just doing the U.S. government jobs, U.S. government's job for it. Because according to international law, the Vienna Diplomatic Convention, the U.S. government has the responsibility to preserve the integrity of that diplomatic building. And uh, instead, it allowed for the Trump, admi- the, the, the Secret Service allowed for the Trump administration to just destroy any any pretense of international law and and arrest those four peace activists. I mean, it was completely absurd. And of course, there was no coverage of it really in the mainstream media except for fairly critical pieces of the Washington Post uh, and which like mocked one of my uh, they called him a 22 year old barista named K K Pritzker and he was one of the main activists inside just really infantile way of covering it and then Vice News on the other hand was glorifying the people on the outside I forget but she's the same one who kind of like stroked Richard Spencer's ego so I guess you know it's all part of the international like fascist alliance. What was it? I don't remember seeing what was so upsetting about it. Um, do you remember? Like, what did she say? She she made them like heroes. I'll, I'll look it up. But I I can't remember. But she just made them seem super cool instead of actually speaking about the issue or international law or the coup, which was already such an absurd policy by the Trump administration. So. I was actually pretty proud because they messaged me at one point asking for permission to come inside and film. And I responded and said, you vice has never been anything other than the hipster media wing of empire. So we don't have any reason to trust you. We'll come in here and like tell the story of the, the, the people on the inside. And they actually included that quote in their, in their piece. So I felt like that was a victory, but other than that, they didn't really make an effort to tell tell the real story. You also, so I feel like, you know, most like people on the left left as opposed to liberal, there's not a real debate over Venezuela. I think most people who are kind of in our scene like get reject that. Yeah, reject the coup. It's obviously very different with Syria. Um, so you get a lot of hate around this. Personally, I find my responsibility as a U.S. journalist to educate my fellow citizens about the policies of my government and how they're destroying the governments of other countries. So I don't really think it's my place to even say that I have this criticism of the Maduro government or this criticism of the Assad government because... In reality, it's the Venezuelan and Syrian government, and they should answer to those people. And I promise you, at least based on my experience in both of those places, that 
there would be more room for criticism and reform within their own societies if the U.S. hand, regime change hand, was removed. So that's what my job is. My job is to even explain to the U.S. public that we are waging a war on these people and that I just, you know, in in journalist circles... Yes, there's all of this pressure to condemn a, a government if you're going to speak out against the policies of Washington. But I just decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to play that game. And I may criticize a country like Israel or Saudi Arabia, but those are countries that my government is actively supporting with weapons deals, billions of dollars. So I think I have a right to, whereas I don't think I have a right to say, look, the, I, I could share criticisms that Syrians or Venezuelans have of their, their own systems, but I believe in self-determination and the, the integrity of those people to resolve their own situations and they could do it if we weren't spending billions of dollars trying to destabilize any government that's remotely independent from the u.s dominated neoliberal order so that's my answer to people when they say do you have any criticism um because i uh, yeah i just i feel kind of like cocky if I start to even say like well I think this about their it's, it's just like why? why 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 do they care what I have to say there are millions of people in those countries who have something to say but you're saying it's different when you're speaking as an American because then you're critiquing your own government as mm -hmm. opposed to yeah and there's enough of that in all US media is the other thing you're hearing it everywhere so what am I going to add it's just not yeah, what you want to contribute again because it's like if I mean I I kind of do feel like similar to what you're saying like if there weren't such an overwhelming media narrative coordinated media narrative or if there weren't so much like military or potential regime change stuff going on it would be easier to have a discussion but like I don't want to contribute to massaging the American psyche to prep it for war what do you want people to know about Syria and Venezuela that maybe you didn't even know until you went there and do you have any particular like smears or attacks that you want to respond to or debunk or maybe you're like I don't want to even publicize them but just in case you want to do that or make fun of some of your critics what I really want people in the US to understand is that on the Syria and Venezuela front and also many other countries that are targeted by the U.S. at this time, the era of the Iraq war or massive military invasions like that, I believe, is over. But the policy objectives of the United States have remained the same, and they still wish to tackle the so-called axis of evil or the troika of tyranny, and they want to pressure any government whether it's outright socialist and democratic or not quite at that level, but still maintains an independent control over its natural resources or allies with countries like China or Russia, they want to remove the governments of the world that fall into that category. And we need to have a very strong awareness of the fact that it's not going to be any longer as though we need to go out into the streets and protest a massive military invasion. Instead, we are waging war on these people as we sit here now through the financial system, through sanctions, which are an act of war. They are illegal under international law. They are killing hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, and, and that's just not something that can be denied, but there's no 
a sense of urgency that we need to pressure our government or be out there protesting against these measures. And I think if I could bring any message back from the Venezuelan people or the Syrian people, it's that it is our responsibility to oppose those measures and to put a conversation about sanctions and place it at the center of any conversation of war and peace. Because it can it's it's a kind of 21st century warfare that's taking place, hybrid warfare without any awareness in our own country. And it it's it's something that you can't understand until you go to these places and you hear people who talk about, you know, how they had to rework their entire diet because they couldn't get corn anymore or you go uh, into a a store and see how the prices are so wildly manipulated. You know, the U.S. public has always had this idea or th- th- this knowledge that we can go to any other country and our dollar, because of our dollar, our buying power is really strong without an understanding of why that is. And it's because the dollar is used to actually hurt the currencies of these foreign countries. And so it's it's not something that can be sustained any longer. The rest of the world is now moving to actually build a financial system that's outside of U.S. control, and that's going to have an impact on our own standard of living here. So it's something that I think we need to make an, an effort to understand more and to oppose. Like I would like to see people in the streets demonstrating against sanctions the way we demonstrated against the Iraq war. And so I just... That's my job as a journalist now is to tell as many people as possible that we need to be aware of this. And as for the criticisms that people make of me, I'm just really not concerned and I I just don't care. It's like if you want to sit in a room and yell at your little circle on Twitter about how I'm a regime apologist or how I love dictators like good for you spend your life doing that I'm gonna still go talk to average people in these countries and try to elevate their voices that's my job and I don't just I just don't care about you (laughs) like any particularly amusing lies or anything I guess you don't really I mean, they did say they did say that we were on a Syrian government funded tour of the country, which was just absolutely false. We were there at the invitation of trade unions. We participated in a conference for several days. And then after the end of the after that conference ended, we were completely on our own and were left to seek assistance from our local friends who aren't affiliated with the government to see the country on our own. And so that that was one particular lie that did upset me because it was so technical, I think. But other than that, it's just such ridiculous smears. I just look at those people even when I, I sometimes I don't even bother to look, honestly, because I just don't care. But I just find them to be clowns. Yeah. So I don't care. Yeah, I think there isn't before people get out in the street into this, go out into the streets about sanctions there. People have to learn more about them. And you and Rania do really important work about this because there that still isn't understood that like sanctions is are violence and they're not just about making life harder in terms of like not having luxury goods but literally they kill people right by lack of access to medicine or insulin or whatever but in terms of the war like the hard you know hard war versus kind of like economic war isn't isn't a, a war war possible too i mean i i think it's important that we Venezuela? oh no like iran 
In other words, maybe we can like do both. I, I mean, I get what you're saying, which is that we can't just be protesting when there's a, an actual military intervention. But um, are you at all nervous that there's going to be war war? I was more nervous when John Bolton was national security advisor, of course. But with the people Trump has surrounded himself with, I do believe anything is possible. And I never want to belittle the threat of war or make it yeah downplay it that's the word i was looking for because the u.s has shown us that it won't stop at anything to get what it wants or achieve achieve its objectives when it comes to regime change but that being said i still believe and partially mostly because of the way u.s objectives failed in syria that the u.s establishment the empire if you want to call it that has reached a point where even people within the military know that to go up against a country like iran or venezuela would be a completely different situation than even syria where they already failed and especially iraq so they can't get what they want as easily because those countries have demonstrated deterrent capacity even if it's not necessarily nuclear weapons but they have very strong loyal militaries in venezuela there are other considerations like the border for example if they were to have a serial serious style even dirty war in venezuela it would mean the total exacerbation of what's already such a uh, difficult crisis at the border that's something that dominates media all the time and i think i actually do believe there are people thinking logically within the U.S. military and political establishment who realize that would be really dangerous. And so that's why they just stick to sanctions, because it's the way where they can affect the most damage without unleashing a complete refugee crisis or military crisis in a way that would also lead to more opposition in the U.S. They know that if they just implement sanctions, there's zero coverage in the media about the impact of those those measures and so the u.s public won't rise up and oppose it whereas if there was a war i think a traditional war on these countries there might be more of a an opposition developed organically in the u.s um, but again you never want to downplay the threat of war though i do think in the the u.s has reached a point in its own power where now its foes now its enemies are strong and they're not going to be easily tossed around and 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 these countries have also learned the experiences of syria iraq and libya and they they have a better idea of how to fight the United States. Do you speak uh, Spanish or Arabic? I can speak Spanish uh, in a way where I, I can get around and I can carry. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and I can have like political conversations. I, I, I can definitely uh, get by. It's not perfect, but I'm confident enough to, yeah. to get through Arabic. I don't have any any experience in. Yeah. Well, the good thing is a lot of Spanish words that have A-L in them. There's Arabic. So you yeah. got your leg, a, a leg yeah. up there. Yeah. Great. Anything else that you want to say or talk about, um, mention? Again, just really important to demonstrate that there is a large segment of the U.S. population that rejects the illegal actions of our government, like sanctions, like constant threats of war, and wishes to stand in solidarity with the people that are targeted by our government and say that a world, a U.S. foreign policy based on international law and mutual cooperation is possible and necessary. So, Anya Parampel, where can people find you online? 
My Twitter is just my name at Anya Parampil, P-A-R-A-M as in mom, P-I-L. And I publish at thegrayzone.com, gray, G-R-A-Y. Okay. Thank you, Anya Parampil. And um, we will see you next time. Make sure you listen to our Patreon-only episode where I talk to Max Blumenthal. If you're not a Patreon subscriber already, you're going to want to become one at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show because Max talks not just about Syria. And, you know, one person we became uh, close to who, you know, helped us get around, who has no connection to the government, actually was involved in financing some of the early protests said that you know he pulled out of the protest yeah. when they became militarized and he realized this was about regime change and the last thing they want is regime change because that means removing an entire state structure and op- opening up the door for chaos and turning right. the country into Libya which really no one wants right when people accuse us of being genocide apologists they should go talk to the religious minorities of Syria what they experienced was a near genocide and life for Sunni Muslims who are living under the control of these fanatics was absolutely horrible as well. So just something you're not allowed to hear in the U.S. Max doesn't just talk about Venezuela. The Guaido opposition, you know, is increasingly becoming an exiled opposition that functions as kind of like a lobby within the United States. You have this sector of them that have been prepared by the U.S. through these regime change training networks. And one of the things that's emphasized in this training through the methods of Gene Sharp, who is you know eulogized in the nation right. as this great peacemaker, is that you should never negotiate uh, right. because that gives the quote unquote dictator uh, time to maneuver and right. strategize. He also talks about Joe Biden. He claimed that he had been a civil rights activist, right. and there was no record of that. But and it was, he said, it was well, lifeguarding, right? Guess what? I was a lifeguard, <laughs> and which resulted in a black in, pool, in a black pool yeah. and it resulted in the weirdest photo op everywhere. If you look up Biden lifeguard and go to you know Google Images or whatever, yeah. it's him in a suit sitting in a lifeguard chair, like a, a bathing suit or like a, a th- suit no, suit. No, just like a three piece suit, no. not not a speedo. Thanks again so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Follow Anya Parampil at Anya Parampil. That's A-N-Y-A-P-A-R-A-M-P-I-L. Max Blumenthal is just Max Blumenthal. Ben Norton is Benjamin Norton. Follow them all on Twitter. Also, you can find The Gray Zone at grayzone.com. That's spelled with an A, so G-R-A-Y. And you can follow them on Twitter at Project. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordoba. 